This is a production of Cornell University. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining for another episode of our Cornell Turf Show. This is episode four this year. Um, uh, as always, my name is Carl Scamenti. I'm joined by Dr. Frank Rossi. Uh, Frank, you always have some opening remarks for us, so I'll let you get those ready. Um, and we hope to have our guest, Evan Meschitti, uh, on from Penn State uh, here this morning. Um, TBD, so we'll see if that if, uh, if he, he's able to make it. But um, uh, let's let's get into it, Frank. Let's see what you're what you're thinking about these days. Early season weather is obviously the the sort of big topic everybody's talking about here in the yeah, spring. Yeah, no doubt, Carl. And and welcome everyone. Uh, you know, to our first sports session. Right, this is what episode four as we count them, but it's the first time we're gathering as a sports group. Uh, and you know, for me, I'm a baseball guy. I think there's three of us left now with the stupid way baseball runs itself these days. But um, I'm very excited for this. And one of the things that you know, I think I'm getting a little sick and tired of talking about dead grass with golf course superintendents. And I feel horrible for these folks that have a lot of dead grass there. And the grass, you know, I don't know if anybody noticed, but it's still March. <laughs> and anybody in Northern Climates knows March could be eight degrees or it could be 80 degrees. And I think uh, it is hard. Uh, I, I would encourage you to not get too worked up about anything because you're gonna see a pretty big fluctuation over the next couple of weeks. I think the long-term couple week outlook is looking a little good for warming up, but it's not looking like that moving forward. So Carl, here's a old picture at the 2009 opening day at Yankee Stadium and, and shout out to the new member of our Cornell team, uh, Chris Sitko back when he was banging his head, must've banged it one too many times. Hmm. Now he's back here. Uh, from the Vineyard Golf Club as the director of our golf and sports turf management operation here at Cornell. And, and I was in New England uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the work we've been doing with our Division I soccer players. But actually, the conversation today is baseball. Before we get to that, Carl, the classic line is we care about what happens between the lines. And it looks like that's your data for today. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, you mentioned Chris Sitko there back when he was doing our grad graduate work here at Cornell. Uh, we did kind of an audit of, of the athletic field management and, and just seeing how many hours it took to line the fields and an operation at Cornell where there's some playing fields, three high quality playing fields, a bunch of auxiliary fields that uh, intramural sports use, things like that. Uh, quite a lot of time that, that's taken up painting the fields. And uh, the other day I, I heard about putting Primo, a growth regulator in the paint just to make it last longer and extend some of the uh, in, intervals between when you have to line out paint. So I was interested, oh, okay, is there any data out there? Uh, and it turns out there is, this is data from uh, down South in Kansas and Florida, so warm season grasses, but gives us a good indication of maybe how much we can stretch out some lining intervals if we throw some uh, Primo as the growth regulator use, Trinexapac ethyl as the active ingredient. Um, and it actually changes based on the paint type, based on what they found. So white paint, you can add something like five days to your interval. Uh, keeping the quality as opposed to just normal paint. Uh, red paint, you can extend it even further, seven days. Um, so for our golf course superintendents lining out lateral hazards, that's maybe something you're interested in. Uh, but they didn't see too much uh, extension in the interval with yellow paint. But uh, just an interesting thing, if, if you add that up over the course of the year, in the shoulders of the season when the turf isn't growing so much, you might see those intervals extended. Um, and, and with cool season grasses, maybe that aren't growing as much compared to warm season grasses getting going in the summer, uh, we might find some, some efficiencies there. So just to keep in mind, that's an option 
uh, something I hadn't heard about until recently and, and interesting data to look at if you're and struggling. Carl, you are correct. Uh, yeah. When we audited the fields, they're doing a lot of time painting lines. I don't think anybody who takes care of sports fields won't agree uh, with painting lines, except Greg Elliott. He still uses powder out in San Francisco at Oracle Park. Uh, he's still using uh, um, the Cal line. Uh, for batter's boxes and lines down the thing, you just don't see that very often. Okay, so for the sports guys, how about a little weather review? Uh, no surprise that the average temperature uh, from September to November to early part of the fall season when we had sports probably was pretty good for us because we were getting warm temperatures later into the season and the activity on the, at least when the grass is growing, the plants can recover. And one of the great things is, particularly if you need traffic tolerance in the fall, is the very high minimum temperatures. In fact, record high minimum temperatures that we received in the Northeast. It's the warmest September to November minimum temperatures we've ever had. Now, December stayed and kept that warm period. Again, minimum warm temperatures. And we're starting to think maybe this might have had something to do with hardening off. And maybe if you're having some trouble with some recovery, this might be it. But then by January, the minimums were getting colder and we were a little bit below normal for the month of January. And this could be where maybe some cool season grasses got set back, but it warmed up pretty quickly again, this time shifting to the maximum temperatures and seeing that the maximum temperatures uh, went up pretty good after that. Now, as we start to think about taking care of our sports fields in the spring, you know, obviously you need temperature for growth and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I, at going into the winter, the problem with the fall season was also that it was among the wettest, right? You look at central New York, you look at the, the Mohawk Valley, uh, the leather stocking region up there uh, around Albany. You see a lot, a lot of moisture and you see out on the Cape, out on Mass, out on the western end, the old western mass out there, pretty wet out there. And again, looking at normal precip, departure from normal precip, you see we're at 200% normal since December. So not only was it wet going in for a lot of us, but it's been wet coming out, right? However, it still has left a few of us on the dry side, right? Uh, you get down into Philly, Southern New Jersey, the Northern reaches, and I didn't, uh, I was a little lazy this morning. I didn't get the updated drought map uh, for this coming week. And, and some of this might be relieved uh, in the moving forward. Now, again, we've been pretty warm. The temperature departure up until the last few days was 10 to 12 degrees above normal, unless you're right along the coastal areas. You see those coastal areas, they're not getting uh, as warm as inland areas are getting. So the, but here's the story, right? We're going to be wet up along the coast where they need the moisture. Uh, you're going to get a fair amount of it, one to two inches moving forward for the weekend. So again, if you're out there with, you know, soccer camp starting and, you know, school games starting, uh, they're going to be playing on, on wet fields. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is the forecast moving forward is, is not looking good for warm temperatures. You're looking at maxes in some places in the 30s and 40s and barely reaching into the 50s, uh, even along the coast. So just to put this in perspective, right? What, did the, what does this temperature mean from how the grass grows? Well, the, one of the tools we use to talk about this nowadays is something we call growth potential. It is basically the temperatures by which, under which 
photosynthetic activity, the, the reaction in the plant that turns chemical light energy into chemical energy, and how efficient that is under certain temperatures. So if you look at where the average temperature could make it to 50 degrees, let's say your average temperatures were 50 degrees, and you're feeling like, oh, I'm working in shirt sleeves, that grass is only at about 25% growth potential, which means <laughs> you're wearing it, it's not growing back that quickly because it's only at 25%, right? Imagine you didn't get a good night's sleep and you only got a couple of hours. You only got about 25% energy for that day. You feel like pretty good about a 12 hour day. I, I don't think so. So let's be really careful and be mindful of the fact that the grasses really aren't getting going except in some problem areas. In fact, they get going in compacted and wet areas even faster uh, but long-term, they're more likely to fail. Now, the forecast isn't looking good. If you think about 50 as a base temperature by which things have to get over to start accumulating heat and getting our systems going, right? You can see we're not expecting a lot of base 50 growing degree days, single digit base 50 growing degree days for the next several days. And again, if you're trying to get things going, we're talking about this with golf course superintendents, if you're getting cloudy weather, like this is a map of the sky cover for yesterday. If you're getting cloudy weather, you're not able to draw heat tanny. You don't have that star in the sky beating down on your areas that might be darker, getting them going if you don't have, if you have cloud cover. So you gotta have sun to get these systems going. Okay, so here's our soil temperatures. They're moving into the 50s. Just remember, your roots are actively growing when your soil's not frozen. So if you've got plants there, they're getting themselves stabilized for the traffic they're going to experience, right? So, so it's not like necessarily you're not getting the rooting that you need, right? And if you got some late rooting from last year, you probably are seeing some benefits of that. But you're not getting top growth, right? You're simply not getting top growth. So if you're coming out of the winter, looking like this on your sports field. And not only is this a bad picture, it's a bad picture of a bad field, right? And for those of you listening on the podcast, I feel bad, but you can imagine, close your eyes and imagine the worst looking spring field you can imagine, especially right down the middle where the traffic gets focused on any of these fields. And one of our great fans of the show who will be a guest with us, Carl, in a couple of weeks, Ben Palmer, uh, was tweeting out not long ago about waking up in the spring, looking at soil temperatures, getting the feet, you know, looking at the color of the fields, getting the skin ready, trying to do some practices to be sure that the fields are ready to start receiving traffic in the spring. So a lot of good information about important spring startup activities. And we'll certainly talk more about this with Ben moving forward, right? So, so here's what's going to start happening. Everybody who's playing lacrosse is going to start getting out there. This sport, I got to tell you, I didn't know anything a lot about this sport until about 20 years ago. I actually think this is the worst sport for traffic because of how the traffic gets focused uh, around that goal mouth and a lot of stuff that happens. Now, nobody's looking at this, but you zoom in. And one of the things we start to realize when we look at our fields through a lens of safety, right? When we're looking at them through a lens of safety, one of the things that we know is 
inconsistencies in the field surface. And you can see, what are you looking at here? You're looking at a little bit of bare ground. You can see some dirt. Let me get my pen, Carl. I think I can do this. Yeah, there's my pen. So you see, you're looking at some bare dirt, but you're also looking at some clumps, right? You got clumps, you got divots, right? And you can see all these imperfections in the field. And just to go back, so you can see, maybe they're stepping on good ground now, but they're looking up playing, not looking down. And we've learned about this from Gerald and from uh, Chase, Gerald Henry, Professor Henry down in Georgia, and Chase Stroh now in Texas, uh, about how players can sense these imperfections and why we're trying to get smarter about this uh, moving forward. All right, so let's get back to the temperature and how the grass is not gonna be growing when it gets beat up. Well, the first thing you better do is start talking to people. Now, listen, everybody sucks at this. I suck at this and I know I gotta be good at it sometimes. Sometimes I'm a little too direct with these people. Although we're all busy and don't have a lot of time, you gotta massage it a little bit when you're talking to coaches and administrators and understand the language that they're talking, right? They're talking the language of liability. They're talking the language of, they got parents screaming at them. They're talking the language of budgetary constrictions. They're talking the language of, well, why can't you get this done, right? So it's important to have an ongoing conversation with your coaches and administrators, and especially when these early fall springs start to happen, right? We're about to experience our full first fall spring. Temperatures in the 50s and 60s for the last several weeks, right? Enjoying them every once in a while, and now teens are coming. Uh, to some places in the far northern reaches of these areas, right? So what should you be considering on sports fields? Well, me, if I had lacrosse, I'd try to get a blanket and I'd put it over those areas when they weren't using it. Or if they really wanted a nice goal mount for their game, I'd say, I'm covering this. You go put the goal mount. In fact, if you look closely at this picture, you can see them painting different goal mounts in this image, right? Look, Look at how they're painting the different goal mouths in this image just to move the traffic around, right? Just to move the traffic around. So target cover areas to draw in some heat and get them going. And this is nothing but a function of getting heat to that system. Well, listen, it's springtime. And as we said, we've been really excited about baseball. And we're so thrilled to have our partner here that we've talked about before, Evan Moschetti. Moschetti? Moschetti, which is Machete, Machete, actually, just like the knife. Machete, very good. Yeah. So we got a Rossi, a Scamenti, and a Machete. Yeah, very, very Italian-American Italian webinar. All right, so we're talking skincare, but not that kind of skincare. And when I'm talking skincare, I'm trying to think about safety, Evan, when we do this. And so I like to talk and like to get your thoughts about this. One of the first things that comes to my mind is lips, right? Yeah. This tends to be a real thing that even like literally, you know, backyard fields, you probably want to spend the time doing this because that ball is going to interact at the edge. Talk a little bit about the way you think about lip preparation in the spring. Yeah, definitely. Spring is, is really the best time to do that first hard edge. And I, uh, when I say hard edge, what comes to mind is this upper right photo that you have with the loop hoe or hula hoe. Yeah. Obviously, you have some growth during the wintertime, not a lot, but then you also have material migrating into the into that interface. And there's two concerns, obviously the safety, as you mentioned for ball bounce, but certainly for drainage too. And especially along the back arc of the infield, 
Um, a lot of times you end up with that sort of smiley face, I call it, where you have a puddle or a ring of water along the back arc. And that sort of gets to be a self-defeating cycle because the more that more material washes in there, you know, the more that soil is going to settle down. As I think you and, and your buddy or your, your mentor, Marty Petrovic, did a lot of work on sediment runoff, right? And grass is one of the best sediment traps that there is. And so as that material migrates towards the back, once it hits the turf, it's not going anywhere. It's going to sink and, and melt. So, yeah, I mean, I think these all four of these photos are, are acceptable ways to attack this problem. Um, definitely depends on the scope of the, the size of the lip that you have. And ideally, you can take care of most of these things in the fall when, when things are drier. But definitely to clean things up, um, this sort of maintenance or first hard edge where you're going really past the thatch layer, just into the soil a little bit like you have with the, the circle there. But if it is more severe, um, obviously the hula ho or the, the manual approach isn't going to be sufficient. And so you have to resort to something like the sod cutter that you have in the top, top left. Um, I really pity anybody who's using this manual sod cutter in the bottom. I mean, that it could work, but you're going to be, uh, you'll be working your muscles for sure. And then obviously in an extreme case this combinator, or they're even like the turf planer or the, there's like a laser guided machine that will actually take off that whole lip. And that's, you know, if you have a couple inches of lip buildup, this is really the best way to go because it's fast and it's super accurate. So, so it really depends so, on the, the scale of what you're, how much material you need to remove. Okay, so now let's say I did this even at the smallest level here, the grass has moved in. I, I've got to put some material back in there, right? Yeah. Has the grass grown into the clay or has the clay washed into the grass? You're saying on the arc side, the dirt's washing into the grass is this side where the grass is growing into the shade, uh, into the skin? Yeah, it can be some of both. And definitely, um, with I think most of the listeners here, attendees here are in the north. So you're not dealing with Bermuda grass, which tends to be a little more aggressive and stolen and whatnot. But absolutely, the bluegrass can migrate into the clay also. Um, and so if you want to measure this off, it's a good time to reset, make sure everything's straight too. Um, I think I got a little off your original question, but the answer is yes, the grass can grow both into the clay. And you got to get material back in. Oh, and the backfilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for sure. So this is backfilling is one of the most misunderstood parts, in my opinion, of edges. Um, Because you can't just leave this the way it is. Obviously, you've created this channel now by removing, you want to go down deep enough to get the roots and the rhizomes out of there. But you can't just fill this with conditioner either, whatever the loose material is on the top. So this is almost like repairing a mound where you want to have a sharp tool to actually scarify the clay or you know, we use the term clay loosely, right? But the, mm -hmm. the infill mix or the fine textured base soil that you have there. Um, you know, this time of year, a lot of, you do have good, decent moisture, actually, a lot of times, as long as it's firm enough to get out there. So that new material will bind or pack. But this is something you do want to take your time with. And if you have the ability, you know, hit this once with a, with a hand tamp to really get it compacted. Or if you're doing multiple fields, you know, you may not have the time to do that. You've got to be a little more efficient and you can just tire roll it. But a lot of times this is two lifts of material and you're basically scarifying it clean, just like you would a pitcher's mound to get that nice firm surface instead of just filling that trench with conditioner. So yeah, right, absolutely backfilling so is really important. Yeah, this is excellent. So now we got you, right? So you told us last oh, year, boy. this great article, right? The cleat in, cleat out, the way to deal with the ball bounce, you know, how the, how the surface is going to have a different response when it chunks up and clucks up. So we're just reminding everybody, we did a show with you about this and here you are back when you were working. Now you're sitting in the lab most of the time uh, doing yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. Here's that article that you draw us to. And then, you know, Evan, I don't know how much you were involved in this, but I got to say you couldn't have been very much involved because they squeeze this thing 
in this document. And, you know, I know Nicole was heavily, heavily involved in this, Nicole Sherry from the, the Orioles. And the infield thing is in the early chapter squeezed in here a little bit, right? Uh, and we're going to get into this, but this is where we begin to see, and people can go to this publication and see some of these best management practices and begin to understand, as you said, the nature of this material. And that's where I'm going to drill in with you uh, as we move forward here. Let me get my slides moving. Now, in the best management practices, right? All right. In the best management practices is this stormwater management, right? So I got my old pal, Paul Zwaska, has got a bunch of these groundskeeper university things. Paul's a Wisconsin guy. I know him from 30 years ago, and he's got this suction pillow. So let's start here. You like this thing, or are you a conditioner man, or both? So let's take a minute and have you work us through how you approach uh, you know, these wet infields before we get to uh, your clay. How do we yeah. get after this now? Yeah, so there's a couple qualifiers. There's, there's two, two things before we talk about the fixing the, the situation, which is urgent and needs to be fixed. But number one, never forget that you want to fix the real problem here, which is that you have a low spot in your infield, right? And that's not going to be fixed today. There's, there's no getting around that. You want, today, you want to get the game in. But ultimately, this this field needs to be regraded. We need to have material imported and probably tilled. And, and uh, this looks like a pretty large low spot, bigger than you could fix maybe with hand tools. So that's the number one thing is you want to always encourage positive surface drainage. And that's part of that is having the right materials and whatnot. So that's qualifier number one. Qualifier number two is you want to try to stay off of this as long as you can. Um, Paul's, you can see, you can see he's making just some minor footprints to get out there. And this is okay, but this is kind of borderline because if you see material squishing out from underneath your shoes, just by walking out there, you're creating more of a mess than you already have, and it's going to be more work later on. So with those two things said, um, yes, number one thing is to remove the surface water in as least uh, with as least amount of disturbance as possible. So the sponges work really well. You can even use old couch cushions. If you have an old shop couch, you know, that you're looking to, to get rid of before you fork, forklift that thing into a dumpster, take the cushions off. And uh, you can use them to squeegee water or to squeeze it up and, you know, put it in a bucket or something. Another thing you can do if you have a larger area like this, you might dig a small hole, you know, maybe the size of a coffee can to sort of concentrate that water and you can pump it out. And there's, there's manual pumps or, or um, ones that you can run off a generator or something. So that's two ways. Um, you want to try to remove the water that, that's on the top before it gets into the skin. Once it gets into the... In, and, and penetrates into the profile, it's a little more difficult to remove. Now, this is a great image. Uh, I, I'm assuming you probably took this as a screen grab, so that's a, a I did. He has this wonderful YouTube series called Groundkeeper You. Yeah. And like I said, I've known Paul a long time. I'm putting him up here because I think he's got chops. I think he knows what he's talking he about. He does. He does. Actually, Paul was my first boss. He gave me my first groundskeeping no job when I, was, when I was 18 years old at, at this facility at West Mass Little League. No so, way. Yeah, it's a small world. <laughs> but no, the groundskeeper you thing is, is awesome. He worked really hard on that. So these are these are the two sort of gradations, if, so to speak, of of calcine clay. You know, they're baked in a kiln to to make them hard particles. So this is different than clay in the traditional sense, right? So that these granules are going to be firmer. But um, you know, you try to avoid using the finer gradation because this works into the skin very easily, and you tend to get this kind of gummy consistency if it's not removed. So in an emergency. That will soak up even more moisture than the larger uh, calcine clay granules, but it's something you want to try to remove after 
after the game so that doesn't get incorporated into the profile. Now on the left, this sort of coarser gradation, almost like a, I guess it would be fine gravel in terms of particle size. Now that, that can stay out there and be used as a top dressing. And not only will it wick up a little bit of extra moisture, but it provides a nice sliding surface and um, makes it feel a little bit more groomable, right? So the players can even fix little indentations with their cleats um, themselves. So that's two ways soaking up the extra water, um, obviously to get the free, free water away first, but then to get a little bit more of a buffer and, and to absorb some of the free moisture. These two products will both work. Okay, so to the material, your latest article last October, you're going crazy, young man. You have gone into the deep dive on this particular yeah. topic and you drew, you sucked me in with you. <laughs> I think you presented this at a crop science meeting. I think you did it at SFMA, where now you're starting to propose us thinking about clay, not as a substance, but as a behavior, right? The right. behavior of the material. And you went through in this article that we'll commend to everybody to look at. Looks like you spend your time making clay uh, blocks here as well. Uh, but you really got me when you talked about Professor Casagrande and his work in the 40s, developing runways out in the Pacific Islands to land bombers on. Now, this probably wasn't the tool he was using, maybe, because you said it was a simple tool that they were able to develop. This is the Casagrande Bowl. Was this it? That's it. So he, okay. he it's named after him. Um, he was a fellow Ivy League guy like yourself. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, uh, that system course. that he came up with is still used today. So he, you know, the original test was Atterberg um this guy in sweden he actually had basically just a bowl and he put the soil paste in this cup and he would just smack it on his hand and Casagrande and terzaghi who is his mentor they they basically decided look this is a cool test but it's not standardized we need to make this mechanized and so that was the apparatus and um it's undergone a couple modifications but basically it comes down to us today as it was almost 100 years ago so what am i looking at here you've got in this article you go from the various ways, making a pencil to crumbles to the liquid, right? And then you tweeted out this picture with your uh, cake things that you made, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you have this chart. But what I know you're trying to do is figure out what are the standardized methods for testing some of these things that we can then give people information about the way they'll behave. So. Yeah. Let's start with, is this a place to start? Or do you want to start with that it's 30% clay, 30% sand? How do the modern infield systems behave? Because, you know, fundamentally, we, we want these guys to, you know, not everybody's got great uh, clays. They can't cover it, right? Are you going to get us to the point where you can say, listen, if you don't have a covered field, you got positive drainage. Here's the kind of material you need. If you're going to cover it, here's the kind of material you need. Is that what you're heading to? And is this a graph of something that's going to help us understand that? Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of unpack. So that, that the, the covering versus not covering is definitely a component. Um, and in general, if you're not able to manage the moisture, having a soil that is what I call higher plastic or what, what is called in geotechnical engineering, a higher plastic soil. That's not a good idea because these soils, their behavior is highly dependent on the water content. And so while they can accept more moisture before they become liquefied, when they dry out, they become very, very hard and very difficult to manage. And so a soil that might um, fall in the top right 
of this diagram, a high plastic clay, they tend to have more shrinkage. They tend to be really stiff and very difficult to work with tools once they dry out. So those, those kind of clays, um, the term that's often used in baseball is like a gumbo clay, which is sort of yeah. informal. But, yeah, so yeah, that yeah. kind of clay um, can perform really well, but it's not for beginners, right? It requires a lot, of, a lot of maintenance and always being covered. So with this, just to back up a little bit, what this chart is, it's a completely different way to think about classifying silt and clay. And this is sort of the, the, the Pepsi, uh, this is sort of like, like the geotechnical engineer's Pepsi to the soil scientist Coke, right? If, if we had the textural triangle, that would be the primary way that we classify soils on a physical property basis, um, at least at a first blush. And this is a similar concept, but it doesn't rely on particle size. So the words clay and silt, if you think back to that, you had that other diagram where we had drawn the, the large uh, sand particle and then the finer sand and then silt and clay, right? So these are the particle size definitions. And this is, I, it's so intuitive, it's hard to get people to rip their minds away from thinking about this as particle size. But geotechnical engineers, they don't even use this concept at all for distinguishing between silt and clay. They don't, they don't really care measure. what's in it. They care they don't the way care it behaves. It, no, they care what it behaves. And so the word silt and clay, they don't, those, they don't have a particle size connotation. This is how they distinguish between them. And um, so that's what this chart represents. And you can, this is, it's meant for fine-grained soils, but you can use this uh, sort of off-label to classify infield mixes too, which have a blend of sand and clay. And technically, those soils, they're, they're technically not really coarse-grained or fine-grained. They're sort of like a hybrid soil, right? So they wouldn't really fit neatly into this classification scheme. That's, that's sort of the broad concept. And so if, as you move generally from you know, bottom left to upper right, the soil is going to get more, more clay-like, right? So it's going to be stiffer, it's going to be harder, it's going to be more malleable or more plastic, which is what the, the word that we use to describe the ability to be shaped and molded. And that's really the most important trait of a, of a mound or even of an infill where you're looking for that cleat in, cleat out playability. The soil to be sort of molded around the cleats without breaking the pieces. Okay, so let's go back here because you talked about the deformation when we were chatting about Paul walking on the dirt here. This looks like clay that's behaving in the liquefied state. Right? It's getting close. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's able to flow. You're not quite under its own weight, but you have almost positive, what we would call positive pore water pressure. And so when you step on that, the load is borne more by the water than it is by the soil skeleton. And water, of course, has no, no shear resistance whatsoever. And this is where, if you think about safety, number one priority of, of all you know, sports field managers the safety is going to be compromised because it doesn't offer any shear resistance. And so it'd be pretty easy to slip. Okay. So in that article, you did a deep dive in clay platelets. You're doing electron micrograph stuff. This is wonderful work. Evan. What does it mean practically? Again, I was really appreciating you say at the higher end, these really good materials, they're not for amateurs. These are things that like a putting green, you got to mow it every day. Exactly. Plus with it, right. You're telling me this is dirt that is going to get covered, that's going to have three or four guys to fuss around with it on a routine basis. Usually guys like you used to be that are taking care of two acres of ground, right? right. So what are you telling the people that Zwaska is trying to talk to at the lower end about the way they should be buying and looking at material if they're looking at their stuff this spring and saying, listen, I can't have another spring like this. I need to do something to fix this. What kind of advice are you going to give these folks to begin to look for materials that'll fit their needs? 
Yeah, the num I mean, there's a couple things. One is you, you, your material needs to have a higher sand content in general because the sand is what allows that soil to have more like friability, I would call it, to be able to groom it easily so that when you do get chunks or, or clods or cleat marks, whatever you want to call them, <clears throat> that your drag can fragment them more easily. Um, those materials are not going to require as much nail dragging. They're a little more forgiving. So generally, you know, to refer, refer kind of back to the original specification that does work pretty well, you want to shoot for like 70 to 75% sand in that mix. And the other thing that we found, and, and I, I don't, I don't take credit for discovering this, but we've definitely validated it in our lab is that you want to, um, you want a lot of that sand to be in the coarser fraction. So you want to avoid the fine and very fine sands. Now those terms are kind of relative, but uh, as far as sizes go, like anything below uh, 0.25 millimeters, you want to stay away from. And the reason is that material tends to migrate really easily. So that's a significant challenge on these kind of fields you're talking about, where there's not getting tarps, right? So it's a huge difference because when it rains, that material can, can wash or migrate. And this happens slowly, um, but it does happen on every field, no matter how high maintenance it is. And a lot of times what will happen is the material isn't even leaving the field. It's just moving from the top of the crown down to the bottom. And you can sometimes rescue that. But to return to your original question, what to look for in terms of an infield mix, that's one is the sand content, sand size, uh, and then consistency also. So talk with your supplier and find out, you know, how are they blending the material? Is it something that they um, can, can produce repeatedly so that next year when you buy another load, is it going to be the same product? Or is it, if it's something that's harvested, you know, you don't know necessarily what the, the textural. So, so is this where a product like DuraEdge comes in? And this isn't an ad for DuraEdge. They're not sponsoring anything, but it is a, I know McKnight, I know uh, Knight, McKnight, uh, when he developed it early on, at least working on it with Danny. Uh, yeah, I think they were playing around with it years and years ago. Is that kind of material a good choice for the school grounds folks? Yeah, one thing that I like to tell people when they're contemplating installing uh, like an engineered soil like that is just if you have multiple fields, just try one field. You know, you don't have to necessarily commit to doing your whole complex. And I don't know that can be difficult often to, to convince stakeholders. But a lot of times, once you install something like that, that does perform better and doesn't doesn't migrate as much, um, the difference is clear and you can you can end up saving money because you don't have canceled games. Right. And you have less you have less uh, revenue loss, from concessions and things like that. So yeah, I mean, Grant, that's something they really take pride in is their, their blending and quality control and that they can produce the same thing over and over. Um, and they're not the only company that does you know, quality control, but certainly they, they have uh, become a very prominent member of the industry for that reason. Is the infield mix inherently different from the batter's box and the mounds? And if it is, in what ways? Yeah. So this would go back to one of the first slides you showed where I think there was a specification on about under 30% sand and then there was like a silt to clay ratio or whatever. And so mound, mounds and plates are, so it could be, you can build that out of the same material as the rest of the infill. And at the absolute bare bone maintenance level, that's what I recommend. Just leaving it the same, something you can just drag right over, right? But <clears throat> you need to have an understanding that those, the holes are gonna be more substantial and this could, it is gonna require a little bit more frequent um, repacking, but the, the process is simpler than it would be to take care of something that's higher clay content. So if you do install like clay bricks or bagged clay, that's a scenario where you really need to commit then to keeping it covered and having some water to prepare. So the, the materials themselves are, they tend to be different. Those mound clays uh, don't have sand added usually, and they are going to be stiffer and it's going to provide better playability for the hitter or for the pitcher because the, um, 
the material will stay in place and it'll it'll withstand the wear over the course of the game. And I've watched, I mean, I remember back in the day when Sabathia used to pitch for the Yanks, when his leg came down, talk about chunking up. It would cause the other pitchers so many problems. They were like, hey, get umps guy. You got to fill this hole. We're not filling a hole. It's not raining. We're not touching this thing. That's your problem. So some of these guys, some of these mounds, that material, I don't think people always realize the amount of maintenance these things take. You got to go out there. You got a big guy pitching in your, or big gal or whatever, even the women's softball pitchers, they can dig it up pretty good as well. Um, These holes can be really big sometimes. Yes, they can. And this would be one, this is a, we can relate this back to that plasticity chart where the higher, higher plastic plays tend to hold up a little bit better because they are stiffer. And so like for a guy like Sabathia, obviously that's, he's a big boy. And so if you have a lower plastic material or like an infill mix, that's going to really blow apart. And you can actually translate this even down to a lower level though, because um, although those materials tend to be harder to work with and a little more expensive, you end up using less of them, right? So when you scrape up the chunks at the end of the day, a lot of times the hole will be smaller. And so one thing Paul taught me is if you actually go for the more expensive mound clay, um, you might end up saving yourself money because you use less of it. So and, it depends, you know, every, every situation is different, but understanding the level of wear and, and your level of maintenance is the number one thing. How funny is that you worked for Zwaska? I had no yeah. idea you worked for Zwaska. He, we got to got to get him to watch this. And and we'll just call it three Italian guys talking about dirt. Yeah. That's what we'll do <laughs> yeah. here, Carl. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time. It's so great to have you. I'm glad we got to work this out. Carl, why don't you get us out of here? Yeah, thanks, Evan, for joining. Um, thanks, thanks for having everyone me on, guys. For, Appreciate it. Yep, thanks, everyone, for coming for another episode of the Cornell Turf Show. Uh, We'll see you guys next week for another golf and uh, lawn and landscape show. Take care. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.